It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We discuss universal credit. You ask us how we scout out new talent in the new parliamentary parties. And Alva explains to us what she found out when she went to Ireland to report on the election. So universal credit has been delayed again. Anoush, you're our kind of universal credit watcher i'm not going to do anything awful like ask you how many times it's been delayed but so yeah what's so i did used to count i think i'd got to like (laughs) six maybe but obviously there's different types of delays so one delay is the full rollout which is migrating every person claiming benefits onto the new system and another type of delay is delaying just moving over the new claimants so the original timetable was that everyone should be on universal credit by april 2017 and all the new claimants who would be just claiming new and then therefore put onto the new system automatically by 2014, I think. But I'd have to check that. But yes, universal credit has just been sort of defined by its delays and setbacks and Mm -hmm. IT programs that didn't work and cost the taxpayer as this latest delay is costing the taxpayer a pay of £500 million. And seeing as one of the aims of universal credit when it was first announced when the age of austerity kicked off in 2010 by Ian Duncan Smith, was for efficiency and for a waste-free sort of benefit system. It's it's starting to look so ironic, especially especially with all the other ironies in the system that it doesn't make work pay, in inverted commas, for a lot of claimants. Pardon my ignorance, but what kind of delay is this most recent delay? Is this for all claimants? Yeah, so they were supposed to do a full, they were supposed to start the full rollout by the end of this year, which was already a delay, which Amber Rudd signalled when she was working pension secretary. But now it's, that's not going to happen yet. I'm not sure of the new deadline, but I imagine that we should take any new deadline with a pinch of salt. Because the interesting thing is the new deadline is 2024. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because the fascinating thing is, is, and of course, Noosh knows this much better than I do, but one of the weird things about universal credit is that it obviously was kind of the product of two masters. On the one hand, you had some nebulous ideas about how to reform welfare, some of which I think make a lot of sense, some of which do not. Yeah. And then you had the political project to save money. Yeah. And the Treasury, I George Osborne at the time, didn't believe it would ever happen. So one of the ways they would save money is by going, here are some cuts and are politically painful, but they will be grandfathered in to universal credit. And so it used to be this way for the Treasury to save money. Now, mm. because as those cuts have started to be felt by real people, they've gone, oh, wait, no, these st- are still politically too painful. So now, despite the fact that universal credit is less generous for the people on it, because it's more complex. Now, I think actually there's a very strong argument for increasing the, increasing the amount of bureaucracy to gives out your benefits is sort of fine and dandy. But because it is more expensive anyway, yeah. and it's now more expensive because they've had to undo some of the cuts planned to it, 
I suspect one of the reasons for this delay is actually about saving money because Universal Credit's now looped back around and it used to be a thing that you could save money by going, oh, well, these cuts will come in with Universal Credit. Now you can save money by going, oh, well, because I think it feels interesting to me, right? The the question Mm. we keep asking ourselves is the spending targets over the next five years look very difficult to me. Yeah. When is UC being moved back? When has the UC rollout been moved back to me? Oh, it's just outside of that that very difficult envelope. And I feel that once the government's decided to do that once, my question is, is well, won't you just do that? Again? Yeah, exactly. And you can understand why that's tempting because you can make it sound compassionate. Oh, you know, claimants are unsure about the new system. We know it's had some problems. We want to be as careful as possible. You know, make sure that it can meet all sorts of individual criteria. That, you know, it's been so sweeping that it's basically punish single parents and women in abusive relationships because of the way that it's set up. I won't go through all of the different quirks of it now. But I think what you said about universal credit being intended to save money is so important and people forget that. People forget that it the new system has cuts priced in. I was on a programme yesterday where a Tory MP said the intention of universal credit was not to save money, it was to make work pay. To make work pay was just one of the one of the mm. the new system's intentions. It was it was introduced to, to to save money. And so you're right, it is always going to be inextricably linked to what state the Treasury is in at that at that current moment. Another intention of it was to <laughs> to incentivize strong family units, because of course it was a sort of Ian Dun- Duncan Smith kind of mm-hmm. Christian approach. And that you can see has been severely undermined by the fact that parents are struggling to get into work under universal credit because they now have to pay their childcare payments up front and then wait for a receipt to be reimbursed by the DWP. And that's oh, that's, that's the latest. I think there's a court challenge mm. um, on that. And that's the latest news on universal credit. And of course, to bring it back to politics, Lisa Nandy has said, has said that she'll scrap it if she gets to be Labour leader. But I mean, the eternal question for Labour politicians is what do you replace it with? Yeah. Because obviously the is it obvious that one couldn't return to the legacy system? I think there's a there's a degree of political consensus across the board that while the separate benefits might have been better for claimants, the system was a bit Byzantine and yeah, yeah. confusing. So if they're not returning to the legacy system, what do they replace universal credit with? It's a live question and it's a very tricky one. It's one the Labour Party in four years of opposition with Jeremy Corbyn never really answered. Yeah. So, so yeah. I do mm. think that the belated sort of kind of like, you know, the kind of like, can you copy my homework? Sure, but don't copy it. Don't make it look too obvious. <laughs> when like John McDonnell kind of finally like turned to Margaret Greenwood and were like, here is your welfare policy. Have fun of effectively going, we'll scrap it. But in the meantime, we'll just end the taper rate. Because yeah. I, I do genuinely think actually there is a, well, my kind of sort of like, ultra-liberal position is, to be honest, I actually think that mostly if you give people a basic subsistence income when they're unemployed, they and you, yeah, and instead of having sanctions for turning up, you, yeah, there's this weird idea in adult skills education that what we're all going to do is while we're working our current jobs, we're going to go, ah, I know, the thing I could learn that will cause me to get another job is X. No one thinks that way. Mm. If you think about everyone you know who's getting a further qualification or a first qualification, none of them are necessarily doing it going, and this will unlock my next job. They're going, I'm doing a master's in this because it's interesting. I'm doing a, you know, the logical time for people to upskill is when they become unemployed. And therefore, the logical role of a job centre is not to go, by the way, here's some bureaucracy involved being a claimant. It's to go, right, here's your upskilling. And actually, because ultimately, if you're a claimant who whose reaction to just being given money 
to live on when you're unemployed will be to do nothing and to slide further into unemployment. You need a different state. You need further state intervention anyway. But if you assume that politically you can't win consent for something which doesn't involve a measure of sanctions, then actually UC and its you know, this kind of idea of UC of having one benefit, I think works quite well. If you end the month long wait for a payment, yeah. if you fix the taper rate, all of which are things that that sort of final full, fi- final range of, of of changes that John McDonald slash Margaret Greenwood brought in right before 2019, I think work. I did think it was interesting. I think it's fascinating how though that somehow one of the things which just did not register at all is yeah, the, is that Labour did sort of belatedly come up with an answer to this, and they're having a leadership election, and they've all acted all as revert- if that didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't understand they've- that because realistically, whoever's Labour leader is going to have to have a policy where they basically say we're not going to call it universal credit anymore, but mm-hmm. they're going to have to continue the system with all of the changes that you just outlined that they said that they were going to make in the manifesto as a sort of in the meantime. We'll, we'll tweak it while we try and come up with our own welfare policy. It's so expensive. They're not going to be able to. It will be underway. I know it's slow and it's being delayed, but it will be underway, well underway by the time Lisa and Andy or whoever gets to be the person who is sort of viable opposition. And so in, I think it was maybe Becky Long-Bailey's second article where she went, or maybe even the first one of the multiple launches they've all had, where she went, we didn't lose because we wanted to scrap universal credit. And it's just like, did you? I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, call me old fashioned. <laughs> they but, didn't. But yeah, if you say we <laughs> read hit, the manifesto, yeah, if you say we'll have these <laughs> fixes and then we'll come up with our own alternative at some point at the end of five years, like, I mean, it's a bit like my plan to like properly learn French. Yeah, like, I'm, I, 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 you know, it, it, it's not real. Um, and yet somehow they've all absorbed that, right? At least Andy's promising to scrap it. Keir Starmer's mm. promising to scrap it. It's just like, guys, you've played this movie before. Um, mm. The question I sort of have is what is going to happen, and I feel like, Patrick, you're probably best placed to answer this one, is um, now obviously it's not really accurate to say that the new seats they've gained are poorer than, than la- the Labour seats in current. However, right, every time the Conservative majority gets bigger, broadly more people who are, you know, well, not necessarily more people who are voting Conservative, but certainly more casework in Conservative constituency mailboxes mm-hmm. becomes UC-related. I mean, among the new intake... Yeah, have they developed feelings about UC yet? I think there is strong support for the principle of UC and the sort of Duncan Smithian prioritisation of work. But there is certainly discontent because, because, as you say, the Tory coalition's demographics have shifted a little bit. Obviously, more of their constituents and indeed more of their voters will be claimants. So there is, you know, strong support for mitigating the harsher edges. But I'd say common view among MPs in the red wall is that a lot of their constituencies are blighted by welfareism. The words of one, actually, I've paraphrased that to make it sound better than what the uh, wow. then Tory oh candidate, the, the, the then Tory candidate in a red wall seat said to me during the campaign in slightly saltier terms. But that doesn't mean to say they don't, they don't want UC to work mm. better because the principle of UC is something they agree with. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You, you Ask, Ask Us. Us. And this that was week, the best one yet. <laughs> this week's You Ask Us comes from Matt Woods. Do we and other journos, well, obviously, well, one can only really speak for oneself, have a process for learning the new MPs, engaging which ones are a bit starry-eyed, loose-lipped, and worth cultivating to be a blabbermouth? Now, I'm very aware that many new and old MPs do listen to this podcast, so just <laughs> press the skip button for the next ten minutes, and we'll discuss all of our, our weird methods for identifying weak spots. So, I think conceptual weakness in the question there right which wouldn't be necessarily be obvious to someone who doesn't work or spend a lot of time in Westminster in that if someone is a new MP it doesn't necessarily mean they're a new face on the parliamentary estate or on the Westminster scene right to give you an example Danny Kruger for instance Mm. the new Tory Mm. MP for devices was a political director of Boris Johnson's Downing Street is well known to a lot of senior political journalists. Mm-hmm. So in, in that respect, if someone has been a spad or you have a pre-existing relationship with them or you know, if you're a weirdo and know they've been a, a councillor somewhere and you've had cause to speak to them before in you know, not directly related to their parliamentary work, then you already, you already know. And also that the same goes if you are, say, Dehina Davidson. No, Deanna, Deanna Davidson. Sorry to... Rhymes with Deanna. Sorry yeah. to Deanna. It's in her Twitter bio. Muscle car enthusiast and enjoys fluffy animals. Yeah, we've all read it. <laughs> what what fun. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, she has run in several constituencies mm. before, ran in Sedgefield in 2017, ran in Bishop Auckland in 2019, is now the MP. So, like, some people become... advertise themselves as characters well before they arrive in, in parliament mm-hmm. i mean yeah and, the, and as patrick says there's so many examples of people who just because they are new they aren't necessarily inexperienced so someone like bell ribiero addy was an advisor to diane abbott and is now the mp for stress and she's already been promoted to a ministerial position and that applies to all of the parties basically like daisy cooper for the liberal democrats is their new mp for st albans but she ran for party president and is really really well known within the grassroots and also crucially ran joe swinson's leadership campaign in terms of trying to find people who are particularly starry-eyed or loose-lipped, I feel, I don't know what your experience is, I feel like that's kind of the wrong approach because I feel like it's the more experienced politicians who are more comfortable with the difference between on-record and off-record. And so I'm always struck that less experienced MPs, regardless of age, are the ones who are, who have a greater tendency to be on-message no matter what. And it's the ones with more experience under their belt who know that especially a journalist from the new statesman isn't going to you know suddenly screw them over and reveal everything they've been saying off record they're like much more comfortable to have a really really honest conversation with you off record about what they really think and they know that it that it won't go anywhere so i feel like in terms of who good sources are they maybe are and i I think the same applies with civil servants it's the people who know the way the the system works who are more likely to give you 
good stuff. I don't know. Is that your experience? That actually, and I always, this probably sounds patronising, but I always feel slightly sorry for new MPs that I meet because they mostly have that fear in their eyes that they're meeting a journalist, even if you're from a magazine that's not necessarily associated with sort of screwing them over. Mm. And you kind of think, oh, this is a bit, this conversation is probably a bit pointless because they're being quite guarded. Mm. It's good for sort of like meeting someone. And I think it's very good for interviews. I think it's good for on record interviews, interviewing new MPs usually throw up interesting things and they sort of mm. give you a sense of the flavour of what the new parliament's going to be like. So I think on record, they, they, they have good value. But I think you're right about the fact that um, sort of the more experienced people who are more comfortable talking to journalists are perhaps more useful for those kind of unguarded conversations that 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 are most valuable to our work mm. and it's also and it, sorry and it, but it's also it's also true that people who appear interesting at the start of, of, of a parliament by the end of a parliament or by a year into the parliament you realize well actually everybody in the lobby took that person for coffee and they're neither that interesting nor that impressive. I won't name any names from the 2017 Parliament, but there were <laughs> certainly a lot of people who were written up fairly breathlessly who subsequently turned out not to be worth the time people had, a time and energy people had expended in courting them. Yeah, mm. so, so, so my kind of theory of, 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 you know, of new MPs, right, is one, so obviously, right, the in a parliament like this one, A, you have a wave election, you know, 50-odd conservative gains, but you also have a large number of retirements. So I think there are about 100 new conservative MPs all in all. In many ways, actually, for me at least, right, my main thing is not who among these people are going to tell me things they shouldn't do, yeah. but just, mm-hmm. like, basic things. So to take, like, Huawei as an example, right, we know that in the last parliamentary party, as it were, yeah, if, if you imagine a no conservative seat, no, yeah, there were there were extra conservative MPs, but none of the existing seats had changed hands. We knew that there were at least forty conservative MPs, which is the only, all you need to overcome the majority, who are deeply, deeply sceptical about China, and basically, you know, kind of do think that just because Huawei are the only people who can build it now, you're actually better off waiting to build the five G capacity than you are to do that now. The, the most important thing, actually, is not to find MPs who are in, to, indiscreet, but to just get MPs to tell you how they feel about the top rate of tax mm. or yeah. mm. China's role in the defence thing. And in many ways, so for me at least, like the kind of number one thing I tend to do at this stage in the parliament, partly because it does help to be able to, you know, identify which one is which, is just to kind of sit in the chamber or Westminster Hall and find out, oh, right, so so-and-so is really interested in X. Because mm. the other thing I think a lot of people, you know, don't really understand because we as an industry are quite bad at conveying this is because with any given parliamentary party, you have kind of like centres of expertise, right? There are loads of people in the Parliamentary Labour Party with opinions about education because many, many of them used to be teachers. There are many, many people in the Conservative Party with opinions about fractional reserve banking because many of them <laughs> used to work in banks. There are many, many people in both parties with opinions about the law because many of them used to be barristers and lawyers. However, you know, the old joke of if you always want to be guaranteed a front bench job, be a farmer who becomes a Labour MP because, you know, the agriculture (laughs) brief will always find its way to you uh, is is A, basically true, but also like in a lot of particularly difficult, yeah, kind of difficult issues where some people just know they're not experts. They do just defer to, like, their mate who's Scottish or their Mm. mate who's into foreign policy or so-and-so who's regarded as being experienced on that issue. So I mainly regard, particularly with a new intake, just a kind of scoping out issue to kind of go, like, okay, well, what interests you? What are your kind of, like, preoccupations? Rather than going, 
oh, like who's indiscreet? Because I think, yeah, yeah, completely. Actually, people in you know new intake MPs, you know, do often have this kind of like, particularly when they've you know it's they've it's been an election where understandably they've been watching television. You have this thing where and like, I saw this there was this new MP who kind of they they're like, I've seen you on Newsnight, and I was like, I mean, you make our laws, so <laughs> the extent to which you are more important than I am cannot be understated. <laughs> yeah, cannot be understated. But, so if we go back for a moment in time to 2017 to the strangers bar and um, this this isn't a, an exchange that ever happened it's just a, quite a useful way of thinking about it say you go into the strangers bar in 2017 and you bump into two tory mps at the bar one is closely cropped black hair and a well-groomed beard and the other looks like the shermanator from american pie and you say what what do you two do and they go oh we're both scottish conservative mps and you go well, oh, wow, so you must, you know, be here getting whipped by Ruth Davidson and you'll do whatever she says, especially on Brexit, and you're going to be a thorn on, in the side of the government, especially the Brexiteers. And, you know, those two those two little boys grew up to be Paul Masterton, the Remain rebel, and Ross Thompson, the one of the hardest Tory Brexiteers in them all. So, mm. and in the same, you know, way, as you say, on the key policy issues that will drive fishes through this parliament... There is a world of difference between MPs who have, you know, been parachuted into or, you know, have climbed up through the, the ranks in, in red wall seats, you know, be it on Huawei, Brexit, fiscal policy, whatever. So I think, as, yeah, as you kind of, we talked earlier about, yeah, there's always that weird golden, there's always like a, as one Labour MP who lost their seat, always used to refer to them as the golden bulls generation, you know, Ed Miliband, Yvette Cooper, in the Conservative side in this intake, Claire Coutinho, Oliver Dowden in the last one, people who've been spads to the Prime Minister or the leader who kind of arrive as kind of people who are seen as the coming men and women because the assumption is their boss will continue to promote them in office. But again, those people will be useful if, you know, like you're someone like me who does chin has to do a chin stroking column every week about like the prime minister's thought where you aren't really looking for indiscretion you do just genuinely want someone who can answer the question of what is the prime minister reading this week and, and, and what, do so intelligently yeah, and reflectively mm. yeah where you just i think that's that's the other thing is i think it's it's easy to kind of forget that although there's this kind of in many ways political journalist is a it's a family not a species because if you're just having to like service the daily news thing you'd have to have to have a kind of like file and forget attitude almost with with new mps because you are very rarely going to have to be called upon to go you know like the latest developments in boris johnson thought so there's an election in ireland on saturday and albert mm-hmm. you have i mean not just but you've Semi just got back. Yeah, I got back on Saturday evening, so it feels like I only just got back this Wednesday. I'm still recovering. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was um, a really, really interesting trip. And like before I describe, you know, the piece that's going to be in the magazine, I would say, you know, full credit to Irish politicians for being so incredibly welcoming and open to access from a, a kind of foreign journalist. I was so impressed. I'm like, hang on, that doesn't respect the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement. <laughs> <laughs> actually, no, it is your choice to be f- foreign or, uh-huh. or not. Um, actually, not, yeah. not, good point, not in terms of me being Northern Irish, but the fact that I'm coming from a sort of English publication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were really, really great at giving me so much access. I went out on so many interesting canvases, spoke to people from all the main parties, did a spot of press conference tourism where I was just at the equivalent of press conferences we would go to a lot here, but for a completely new political party and with a whole new set of journalists who I didn't, in the most part, recognise. So that was really, really great. And I sort of went with the intention of writing a piece for the magazine, but 
like knowing the themes of the election but just sort of planning on seeing what came out of it and then the piece ended up being on the Sinn Féin surge which is just definitely the story of the election so assuming sort of no prior knowledge in our from our listeners Sinn Féin would obviously be the party we most readily associate with being one half of the power sharing executive instalment in Northern Ireland and historically the political wing of the IRA but they're now a political party on on both sides of the border in Ireland and um, you know they would be one of several parties on the left in the republics along with the social democrats and labor and the greens and lots of independents but they're having a sort of unprecedented surge at the moment which was amazing to witness in real time so when I arrived all my conversations were were about whether the Sinn Féin surge was happening because they have you know climbed about seven points since October at the point when I arrived and then you know there was a poll I spoke to one Sinn Féin politician and then um, it showed that they had overtaken the Taoiseach Leverakers party Fine Gael into second place and then by the time I left you know they were neck and neck and then a day after I got back they were ahead of the two main parties so Fianna Fáil Fine Gael both like broadly centre-right parties who have sort of exchanged power for the best part of a century often a coalition with smaller parties but they're the two that sort of rule the roost and at the moment there's a, a discourse around them being broadly the same and people being fed up with both of them but writing the piece and being there I sort of wanted to capture just quite how interesting that Sinn Féin surge is because in some senses, I mean, they might take issue with this, in some senses they're not a normal political party. That's what Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have been arguing because of their very unique past and their continued difference to lots of other parties. The prospect of them doing well in the Republic, where there isn't a peace process like in Northern Ireland, is, I think, quite bewildering to older voters and, and deeply painful in some cases because of the atrocities committed by the IRA basically it's something that you know if you if you I mean I spoke to some older voters and then you know I said I'm I'm, I'll be out canvassing with a a Sinn Féin candidate this afternoon and they've just they were just so shocked in some cases or you know they would say why and at one point I was I was talking to someone about the Sinn Féin surge and they said oh you shouldn't really say Sinn Féin you know because we were in a we were in a bar and they said oh you know it's not really very polite to talk about Sinn Féin I think there's this attitude in now basically a minority but there's still 40% of the electorate in the Republic of Ireland who would never vote for Sinn Féin Mm -hmm. and obviously that's 60% who would but that's much higher than for any of the other parties in the Republic of Ireland and that's a sort of an unusual proportion but it was just fascinating to capture that you know there's that like real depth of feeling from older voters not just over Sinn Féin's past but also their sort of their continued concerns about them in some ways but so what are their kind of continued concerns about so the continued concerns would be if you follow this this is a a complicated example but probably quite an important one if you are following Irish politics so today there's been a lot of discussion about a man called Paul Quinn who was a 21 year old who was murdered by a gang in 2007 murdered by a gang widely acknowledged to have been the IRA even though that's in theory still allegedly but the way it's discussed in in the Irish media you know lots of people drop the allegedly basically because but murdered by this gang 20 men every bone below his neck was broken because he 
It's a fact that he had punched the son of a local IRA commander. Then he was he was murdered after that. And at the time, Jerry Adams, the leader of the party, and Connor Murphy, who is now the Northern Irish Finance Minister for for Sinn Fein, they said that Paul Quinn had been involved in sort of criminality, and they said, you know, we don't want to compound the grief of this family, but it's well known he was involved in smuggling, and that's now you know just taken to be an absolute smear. And several decades on, Mary Lou Macdonald, the leader of Sinn Féin now, was forced to apologise for those comments in a really very awkward moment for her. And then there's another Um, recent example from the Renewable Heat Incentive Inquiry, the Mm -hmm. public inquiry into Cash for Ash, where obviously that was very unedifying and embarrassing for the DUP. But one of the most revealing moments of the evidence sessions was when Marcino Mulia, the Sinn Féin then the Sinn Féin finance minister was at the stand because obviously he was responsible for paying for the billions of pounds in wood pellets that millions, sorry, hundreds of millions of pounds in wood pellets that Arlene Foster, for whatever reason, allowed to keep burning and all the money that that wasted. And, you know, it was like very much he had to close that Marcino Mulia, the Sinn Féin finance minister, had to close the scheme. And obviously he's the minister, right? He you know might say to his spad, hey, you know, what should I do about this? But, you know, he gets to close the scheme. But the the inquiry revealed that Omelia had been asked to close the scheme. It was like, yeah, fine, but then had to go to a, what you'll call in journalese, shadowy, unseen Republican figures to ask for permission to carry out his ministerial duties. The subtext being, you know, he is going to, you know, what people might say, you know, a, a, a shadowy outside body, shall we say, for you know legal reasons. And Michal Martin, the leader of Fianna Fáil, has cited that as evidence as why Sinn Féin are unfit for government in in the Republic because you know it's a you know an assault on democratic principles. So and, and so Pete, there's more on that. I because I spoke to a Sinn Féin politician about that at length for the piece. Yeah. So like long story short, Martina Mollier, the then Northern Irish Finance Minister emailed an ex-IRA man and said would you be content if I made this move and Sinn Féin would argue that that is a sort of normal part of the peace process that they have ex-IRA people who advise them they have a national executive called an Ard Corlia who make it make the decisions collectively but that's just sort of normal and you know it's legitimate to consult your advisors but it's a real like deep cause of concern for the other political parties Sinn Féin say that the parties don't really care about that they're just you know they're threatened by the the electoral that they pose and also in the case of Paul Quinn you know Connor Murphy you know he was imprisoned for allegedly being a member of the IRA he was in prison for five years he's at the time when he was talking about those allegations against a gang of IRA members he said that he had spoken to the local IRA and that um, they weren't involved and which is in itself quite extraordinary because in theory the IRA doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, but um, the mother of Paul Quinn has been has been arguing for decades that he should speak to the police and tell and, and give the names of the people involved. So that's been a really live issue. I mean, Paul Quinn's mum has been on the radio today in tears talking about it. So really very very emotional for people following the debate, and it all came out of the the leaders' debates last night, the last leaders' debate before the election. So that's a sort of taste of the most controversial, like the sharpest end of of issues with Sinn Féin. But the amazing thing when you're there is that most people don't really care. And, and like, it's all I don't about say, housing and yeah, the economy. Yeah, I don't say that in a, flip, uh, in a flippant way. Like In a way, there are lots of different ways to interact with Sinn Féin. And 
when you're there and you're experiencing it, even younger politicians on the left from other parties don't necessarily have deep um, deep concerns about Sinn Féin in those senses. They don't really talk about Sinn Féin as, as any sort of shadowy party. They have specific policy criticisms um, where, you know, someone like from the Irish Labour Party would argue that their policies would be more populist than genuinely left-wing and they would reject that that characterization of them as a genuine left-wing alternative but there's really no like no there's no appetite except for among older voters and the leaders of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael who really need to attack Sinn Féin on all fronts apart from that there's no real appetite to think of Sinn Féin that way and it's it's amazing to witness um like I, I had a sense from the second I was there I thought gosh this this Sinn Féin surge is real that pretty much no one I was speaking to was voting for anyone other than Sinn Féin and most of them were moving from other parties even in, you would think, unlikely ways moving from Fine Gael, you know, centre-right Labour Agri's party to Sinn Féin this time. As Patrick says, it's all over housing. Again, this is in the piece that's out in the NS but I spoke to Sinn Féin's housing spokesman, Owen O'Brien who's considered like the one of the new faces of Sinn Féin. He was saying... Stuff that's absolutely true, that Sinn Féin have really, really worked hard to build credibility and to develop expertise on things like health and housing and to become really, really strong critics of the government from opposition, but while proposing very credible policy alternatives. They've become really impressed that there's sort of a group of four of them who are all considered very, very good spokespersons in the Dáil, so in the Irish Parliament. And they've really had massive cut through. He also wrote a book on the housing crisis in Ireland, which is very highly regarded across the board. And they've had huge cut through on this issue. You know, it's it's the issues that Sinn Féin have been highlighting in opposition that have become the, become the issues of the election um, in a huge victory for them when Leah Varker wanted it to be about the economy and about Brexit but it's on their terms another thing I found interesting was when I was speaking to Owen O'Brien you know they were aware that they were speaking to the new statesman so they were everyone I spoke to always tried to put a you know a British spin on it <laughs> so everyone was giving their insights into British politics I mean I, this didn't make it into the piece because there was no room but he was saying we're getting to fight the election that poor Jeremy didn't get to fight you know we're having <laughs> I was like great <laughs> yeah, but it's completely yeah. right. Like yeah. if, you, if you said to someone six months ago, who will be rewarded for their handling of Brexit at the ballot box, Leo Varadkar or Boris Johnson, you would say Varadkar every time, and that is precisely the thing that hasn't happened. Well, I think yeah. it's interesting because one of the reasons why Sinn Fein cannot win the election, even yeah. though they are surging, is that yeah, six months ago they were losing every by-election, every council election, so they're only mm. fielding candidates in half the seats. Yeah, in forty-two yeah. of of a hundred and sixty. So they've no chance of, of winning. They just might hold the balance of power. But it, it is fascinating. I think a, a, a politician like Owen O'Brien is it is really fascinating because he's, a, I think, a very, very capable politician, very, very good on his brief. The housing crisis in Ireland is really, really bad, and he's very good on it. And he's complimented on it by politicians from all sides and even journalists in the Republic when they have queries over housing would go to him and his team for you know for the robust stats on it so he's built up really really great credibility and he's a very strong sense of of as you say how they've managed to recover from all those bad election defeats and he we ended up speaking for nearly two hours but he yeah he had a very strong sense that they came across as too angry in those elections and they had come to the realization that you shouldn't that people don't need to be told how bad things are basically and so they could forget about that and just focus on solutions 
And also they said that they had forgotten their ground game, you know, this idea that you need to get your vote out on the day. It's just, as a political journalist, he was a great person to speak to for a really, really honest appraisal of Sinn Féin's strategy and their thinking. Kind of remarkable thing with Sinn Féin. Maybe this isn't true across the board. I mean, Pat, Patrick would probably know better, but Sinn Féin pe- politicians speak the same off record as on record in that, he, you know, he was like, well, you know, whatever I say off record, I'll say on record. So we recorded the whole thing and it was very, very interesting. But I said to another journalist... It's military discipline, you might call it. Yeah, well, I said to, I said to another journalist, oh, that, I find that really striking. And they said, that's, that's Sinn Féin. That's, you know, they're, they're on message. Whereas with another politician from another main party, who I won't name... We spoke on the record, and then I said, "Oh, I'll, I'll stop recording. We, we'll go off record." And he and he and he went, "Ah, oh, great! Now you want to know what I just said that was bullshit." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "That's how it normally works, but not how Sinn Fein does it." But yeah, um, but basically, yeah. Long story short, that Sinn Fein surge is real and very like tricky for some people, and and really really interesting as an example of the rehabilitation of a political party, basically, and of the tricky questions about how Ireland relates to its past. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kellyan, our political correspondents Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray. It's recorded by Emily Bootle and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Devil by the Devil and is licensed under Creative Commons. Some of you may be wondering why we didn't do Brexit this week because we decided and it can essentially be summarised as follows. In trade negotiations, there's a big block. The big block bullies the small block. The small block mostly feels the benefits of the extra freedom is worth being bullied by slightly more people. If you're the United Kingdom, however, some people decide that actually what it means is not being bullied by anyone, so they rule out having to do anything they don't want on agriculture with the US and anything they don't want to do with the ECJ on the European Union. As we don't think there's a great deal more to add to it than that, we decided this week not to give you an update on their party's negotiating positions. Don't worry, though, or rather do worry. We expect that Brexit will be back as a main item in the podcast soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.